Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello there, cartoonists and cartoon lovers. Welcome to the Cartoon Pad. I'm Bob Eckstein, and we have Michael Shore on my side. Hi, Bob. And uh, our loyal producer, Marty, is here. And we're going to talk about about cartoons and how the sausage is made. We've got an exciting guest lined up. And I want to thank the show band, 11 Acorn Lane, for our theme song. And um, we we do have a guest in the studio waiting, so we're going to keep it brief. But Michael, we're going to just exchange some pleasantries. Michael, how are you doing? There's there's always a first time. I'm fine, Bob. How are you? Good. Uh, I'll mention I've been working on 3D cartoons. That's what I was working on today. I'm working with um, a software company. And together, we've been working on these uh, cartoons that are 3D. And... Um, I was just wondering, at what point are we going to be in our own cartoons? I'm working, yes, Bob, I'm working on 4D cartoons with actually holograms where you insert yourself. Are they scratch and sniff? Yeah, they just insert only, please. Okay. Well, on that note, I say we bring on our, our guest who's waiting very patiently. We're very excited to have him. This week's guest is at the top of his game as a cartoonist, an illustrator, stand-up, an actor. Brace yourself for this big resume. He's a writer and artist for Australia's most popular comic strip, Ginger and Megs, which appears in 120 newspapers in 34 countries. His gag of cartoons appear in The New Yorker, Mad, and magazines around the world. And he's also president of the National Cartoonist Society. And is the youngest ever. He's 14. Our guest performed stand-up across the country, has performed and produced shows at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. And he's one of the stars of the Food Network. And he's in numerous TV commercials. Welcome, Jason Chaffield. Yikes. Do you want to be my new agent? That was fantastic. Uh, Jason, what else did you accomplish during that introduction? <laughs> Just while you were doing that, I produced my own series on Netflix. Well, it's great having you here. We're really glad you can make it. And um, let me first ask you just how are you doing? Because um, we've both had COVID and we both we both shared that we had some lingering symptoms. Yeah, you were actually one of the only people I knew who had it. And I, was, I took great solace in knowing that... Uh, uh, there was someone I could actually talk to about it because you got it uh, not not early, but not late. Like you, you got it at a time when 
we were still, we didn't know a lot about the COVID hangover. We didn't know that much about the onset of symptoms. And I remember emailing you when you had it and when you were getting over it and really trying to figure it out because it's like a jigsaw puzzle in the dark, really. And yeah, yeah. I've still got, my lung capacity is still a nightmare, but you know. Do you have any other lingering symptoms? Are you, are you funnier or? <laughs> that would imply I was funny to begin with. I have the brain fog for sure. I definitely have that, whatever that thing is that they keep talking about, I definitely have it as if I didn't already. Um, I, I think, yeah, there's lots of different things, just, you know, um, extra sensitive allergies now. My wife had it as well. And now she's got new allergies that she never had before. Her immune system is playing up a bit. There's all sorts of little things, little, Jason, little it, tricks. It's, it's excuse me, Jason, giving. it seems to have affected your accent too. You just have, <laughs> yeah, a, you just have a Brooklyn accent. <laughs> yeah. But what then happened? you said action and I just, you know, I figured you'd want some kind of exotic, as Sam said, you know, it's, what is it? Uh, um, like a, a Columbus, Ohio, or Cincinnati accent or something like that. Ah, did you, did I've you, lived in Cincinnati for many years. So did you I guys, did, I'm a Jim Boltman. Yeah. Oh I, yeah. Good old Jim. I I've met him. He's in, he's in yes. Colorado now doing he zits. Did move to Colorado. Yep. Did you guys hear about the woman who woke up after a few weeks with a different accent? Oh yeah. Wasn't that like a brain thing? Like then every few books I read, there's a, a reference to this story of a woman who woke up with a different accent completely, but it was totally authentic. And she was, oh. it wasn't bipolar. It was a brain thing. It was some kind of um, the thing between the brain that connects them or something. What was, what was the story there, Bob? There was the oh, man that mistaken his wife for a hat, and oh, the hat, that one. yeah, and the hat was not happy about it. I can just tell you that. That one was for life insurance. That was that was oh, different. Okay. Well, um, have you resumed doing any stand up in the club yet? I'm afraid I have. Uh, I went back as soon as I possibly could, much to the chagrin of my doctor. Uh, I, I, it's a compulsion. I think I've spoken to you about this before. It's, it's, it's like having a, that's like being an alcoholic or something. I don't know. It's just, I can't not do it. And I was doing zoom shows during the pandemic. I was doing outdoor shows in like, you know, parks and arena, you know, like Greek theater style yeah. outdoor shows. <laughs> uh, cause I can't, it's, I get very, uh, I start jonesing if I can't do a set. So I have just started doing clubs again. Um, I'm doing my second show. I've been doing bar shows and things like that. But um, And they're all socially distanced and they're all outdoors um, in, in our outdoor beer gardens. But there is one club that I did, the Comic Strip Live, which I'm glad is still around because my home club of Dangerfields, uh, unfortunately, died uh, during the, the pandemic. Um so I'm I'm up for my second show there in a, in a, a week or so for uh, sort of an audition, I guess, to get on their roster. Jason, do you incorporate cartoons into your set? I mean, as a instructional device? <laughs> Not as an instructional device. Uh, I did do a show called Stand Up Comic Strip Live back in 2012, 13. <laughs> and it was basically me doing comedy on stage and then I would draw 
a character on like an easel that I, you know, I'd be telling the story, drawing the character while I'm talking. And then um, I kind of pre-animated the eyes and the mouth. Oh my. The pupils in the mouth. And then I would have someone off stage who had everything queued up and I would sort of push a button and the thing would come to life. And, it's like, uh, it's like Windsor McKay and Gertie the dinosaur. Right. <laughs> Except was there. Yes. Yeah, so it's like a high tech version of that. Exactly. Yeah, it was, it, it was. Um, and so that, that did well. And then I tried it again here in New York um, in, in uh, story. I was Long Island city. I did a show QED. Um, Historia. Yeah, I, I did a sh- I did a version of it here just sort of as a proof of concept. So I do use it for one man show style things, but um, I tried doing it for sets when I first moved here. Uh, I tried it at the creek in the cave, Long Island City, and it was just it's so cumbersome. <laughs> That's somewhere up. in Central Park, so I just, isn't it? Yeah. Q- uh, Long Island City. Oh, creek in the cave. cave. And that's that has also not survived. So to uh, cross pollinate uh platform weren't you on talkward and talked about shoving uh your your golden <laughs> book of ideas into the loo i remember that one it was, it was memorable the wonderful cross-promoting talkward podcast yes. with marty dundix sent the weekly humorist yes was- i had a lot of fun i i think you know all right so that's a very true story that's I, worth I, telling I, again and it's better than bob's well, questions that's not at all true he's okay. actually He's a very good interviewer. Okay. If fine. you want me to tell the story, I can I can give you the abridged version, which is that um, I moved from Australia to America after seven years of doing stand up, and I tried doing my old stuff, and it just wasn't really working. And uh, even if I slightly tweaked it, it didn't really work because people laugh at different things in Australia, and there's a different rhythm, a different style of comedy in Australia. Even though we all speak English, it's a, it, 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 there is a cultural difference. Um, and we're not all Jim Jeffries. So we had uh, a moment where I was sitting in the lobby of a, I guess it was like a hotel bar on, on Mudlow Street. Um, and I said to my wife, Sophie, I was like, none of this crap works. And it was a book that I had been carrying with me for seven <laughs> years, every joke I'd ever written. And... I thought I, after a couple of drinks, I thought I'd be very ceremonious about it, very, you know, <laughs> very profound. Yes. And I walked downstairs to the bathrooms and I, I tore up all the pages out of the book, threw them in the toilet and I flushed them. Um, and if you heard the material, that's exactly where it belonged. It didn't go. But unfortunately, the, the water started swirling and then going purple from the ink and then overflowing and then I just, I broke the toilet and it never really, um, yeah, it, 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 I mean, it was a fitting end to terrible material, I, I still but love I started that story. again after that. It sort of reminds me of train spotting where you, cl- you should have climbed in the toilet after. I mean, that would have been. I did not, yeah, I did not choose life. I chose comedy. That's good. Um, but, uh, <laughs> so Bob's yeah, con- that was, Bob's that's, confused. Yeah, that's Come story. on, Bob. Bob. Yeah. You know, I want to ask you how you got from growing up in the outback. I mean, you really were in the <laughs> outback. I mean, I, I mentioned this to you before. You had the bugs the size of English muffins, and it's mm-hmm. 120 in the shade. I don't even know how hot it really got. You had no culture, but a few uh, Midnight Oil albums. Yes. Blooming, <laughs> blooming onions three times a day. Oh, my I mean, God. How, did, this all, did this uh, all toughen you up for the gag cartoon landscape? <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, it was a desert island. I was living on a desert island, Bob. That's how that's, <laughs> I got my. Um, that's All you had I was a case of uh, Marmite. Oh, my God. Marmite is for expat British people. That that's Vegemite is the uh, Vegemite. The I get those two confused. Though so. national sport. Yeah. Uh, Australia is a very interesting place um, in in uh, in relation to. It's a good place to make a lot of mistakes while no one's looking. Does that make sense? So that you can <laughs> you can really hone your craft there, and there not be any real. Um, I don't know. I guess if you know you fail. And you try things and, and there's not that many people uh, noticing. So by the time you get to, you know, bring your stuff to market, um, it's, you've, had a, you've had some time to experiment and try things and figure out what your style is. And, what, uh, you know, what caused the leap to things. New York from uh, Australia? I, I always have a different answer to this question, but today... I was going to assume a woman. It, and, no, it's just, oh. it's New York. What's not to love here? I mean, it's the greatest city on earth. And I, I have to say, like, so my wife and I met in Australia. She was a comedian when we met. Uh, we were both doing the Melbourne International Comedy Festival when we met. Uh, she is smarter than me, so she stopped doing comedy. Um, and we both moved here because, you know, we'd been living in Melbourne for a number of years and, I had moved there from Perth. She had moved there from Sydney. And, uh, you know, we just thought we don't have any pets or kids or debts <laughs> or anything. Like if we're going to live abroad, we may as, do it. That's may as true. well do it now. And so we thought, what have we got to lose? So we did it and we're still here seven years later. Well, congratulations. I mean, you've done so much. It's a pretty amazing. And, uh, and you have a new book coming out. The new book is commemorative yes. of of well i'll let you describe this comic strip that's legendary in your hometown well australia as i said it's an interesting place because it's kind of a closed circuit in many ways and as ginger megs has been around since 1921 i took it over about 14 years ago in 2007 um it's a kind of like an australian version of dennis the menace but it predates dennis by about 30 odd years 36 years um he's this sort of larrikin kid larrikin like muck about you know always gets into trouble kid but with a heart of gold um he's a red-headed kid and he started in the newspapers just as a sunday strip as a supporting character back in 1921 in another comic strip uh in much the same as nancy or crazy cat um and then eventually became his own comic character called ginger and yeah. uh, ginger megs and um it's the 100th anniversary this year because um yeah november 13th 2021 is 100 years since he first appeared so we got a book um uh, with penguin random house and uh, a bunch of other things that are sort of slowly being released across the year to celebrate the centenary and uh, yeah it's been an interesting thing you know I, i've never really done a full-on book before much less had to promote a book so i'm you know learning about how much of doing a book is about trying to get pre-sales and numbers and marketing and interviews and you are bob you are my my book um uh, guru on the mount uh you've done more books than i i've had 
hot meals. No, so try, to, I, try to work do, a sn- try to work a snowman into it. You'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have a lot of respect for anyone who's done a book, let alone a slew of books, because it's tough. So it's tough the stuff. book is actually a novelization. It's not really a uh, anthology. So you've no, they've already been plenty of anthologies done over the years, and uh, they're very collectible. But we wanted to kind of look to the future, not the past, on this one. Um, as I say, there's plenty of anthologies that people enjoy the the old stuff. Um, but we wanted to kind of use the opportunity of the hundreds to kind of show that you know he's he's just as relevant today as he was back then. He has he's a little like times. he's a little like a. Doctor Who, he reinkarnates instead yes, of just like exactly. ex- in, instead of existing. And it's like Dennis the Menace is doing the same crap he's been doing for eighty years, right? And he's never going to change. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's a good yeah, that's a good analogy, Doctor Who. Yeah, he he regenerates. He's new with you know each new actor is like the new artist. There have been five artists in the last hundred years for Ginger Megs, uh, five cartoonists, I should say, because they write and draw it. And uh, yeah, you know, it's an interesting thing. It, is, it, it became kind of an Australian icon because, you know, he just kind of ended up typifying what it was to be an Aussie kid growing up in Australia. And he sort of accidentally captured the zeitgeist of each decade in Australia over the hundred years. So it's become this weird little. Yes, I, I like this quote I found from John Curtin, the Australian prime minister. Oh, yeah. Ginger Meggs is Australia's Peter Pan. Most of us can recognize him in our own youth, but unlike him, we had to grow up. <laughs> what a, what a, it's kind of a buzzkill there at the end. Well, he was Australia's wartime prime minister in World War II. Um, okay. He died well, soon after he said that. <laughs> he was in a bad mood. <laughs> they, yeah, he seemed a little cranky. It seemed like a cranky quote. Well, it's interesting. A lot of legacy comic strips just kind of get mm. stuck and a lot of the artists that take it over don't even get their name on it on the strip so That's true. you've been given you know you were given the keys to the kingdom i congratulate you it wasn't easy but i must admit i was very grateful to have the opportunity because my predecessor on the strip james kemsley he put my name forward to the family of the creator to to get them to sign off on me and I was 23, so I didn't. I was doing political cartoons in Perth. Uh, I, I wasn't a comic strip cartoonist, so I had to learn how to do it um, on the fly. Because unfortunately, a few days after he asked me to, to take it over, he died uh, of motor neuron disease. And uh, so it was one of those real sort of bittersweet, you know, ways to inherit a big. Yeah, uh, I, I was saying you seem way too young, healthy, and cheerful to be a comic strip cartoonist because they're usually a pretty healthy. tortured bunch. <laughs> yeah, I know. I hang oh, out historically. With them. I don't know. Maybe yeah. maybe, maybe they're all he- healthy now <laughs> and living you know wholesome you, lives. You you mentioned my being president of the National Cartoonist Society earlier, and I was I don't know if that was on air or not, <laughs> but um, I I it is hang now. out with cartoonists and comic strip and gag cartoonists and comic strip cartoonists and we're a very specific breed of human and um i think we all have the same um sort of makeup you know our brain is kind of wired the same way it's kind of it's like when comics meet each other in a room full of uh what they call civilians (laughs) just go oh my god a comedian you know we're all sick in the head 
Now, Jason, I wanted to ask you about the sayings that I see in the cartoons of this strip. Mm-hmm. What, what, is, what is the meaning behind that? How, how did that come about? Well, my predecessor on the strip, James Kemsley, was really in charge of turning the strip from a Sunday strip into a daily. And he did that in the 80s and the early 90s. And um, he kind of wanted to have a little extra thing. Initially, it started as just like he would write it on a fence in the background or a wall, you know, like like uh, Kilroy or something, you know, like a, little, like a little saying or a little drawing, graffiti. We call them graffiti. And um, the readers really, really enjoyed reacting. They would write in and say, oh, my God, I love those little things. And there's something about, like, Pat Oliphant hiding a little, you know, a little pig in his cartoons saying something or um, having to look for something in a cartoon as, you know, as well as being able to read the strip, like Bizarro. Um, you know, has the, the all those little things you can find. Oh, uh, in the, in Jason, the I can see Nina in your hair right now. By the way, <laughs> nice, exactly. So that's a perfect yeah. example. The the Hirschfeld Ninas is what graffiti is to everyone. Looks for uh, ginger megs, except you don't have to look very hard <laughs> to find them. Um, yeah, and and he left me a gigantic folder full of them uh, that I still haven't gotten through. Um, and I are they ever are I, they evergreen? I mean, are they dated? I think most of them are evergreen. There's some that have, uh, have turned a bit because just culture's changed and comedy's changed a little bit. Um, I think as Seinfeld said, what what is actually funny changes roughly every 20 years. Uh, just culturally speaking, like little gags that you're like, yeah, you can't really say that anymore. Um, but most of it's pretty evergreen <laughs> stuff. They're like philosophical little things. And... Um, yeah, the, apparently, according to Kemsley, it was something like 40-60. 40% of the readers would read it for the graffiti and then 60% would read it for the actual strip. So not bad odds. Oh, so have you written your own yet or they've all been already pre-written? You can usually tell the ones that I've written um, because they're sort of in my comic voice <laughs> oh, okay so yeah they're, they're peppered in there my ones are peppered in there among the ones from the folder um and as i said the folder is very old and uh i i don't know where he he had you know he just he was this kemsley was this real like real powerhouse you know he did everything and he was he was also the president of the australian cartoons association um that's when i met him so and, and he had all these other things going on. So he was I think he's possessed you. Mental. I think he actually his <laughs> his essence was transferred into you by some strange, you know, happenstance. Yeah, it I mean, Jason. Like yeah, Jason. You can't really throw, you can't throw stones about heavy schedules. I mean, you actually have a <laughs> podcast called "There Is Something in This." Now, is that going to continue, or is that has that ended because of the pandemic? So it's, uh, I can give you the exclusive here, Bob. Uh, <laughs> oh, do go on. It back. We're getting the band back together. Uh, I'm actually meeting Scott uh, right after this to discuss it because uh, there's an exciting new development on that front. We, we started that podcast as it was very organic. Scott, my uh, co-host on the podcast, his name's Scott Dooley, fellow expat Australian medium. Um, and comedy writer he 
and I would catch up on Mondays for a beer, uh, just routinely, just to catch up. And you know, he would sort of pitch ideas for like uh, stand-up bits, and I would do the same. And you know, comics help each other punch up each other's material, add tags, or just you know, different angles and stuff like that. And so we'd do that. And then once in a while, because the, the bar we went to had a New Yorker subscription, we'd flip open the New Yorker and go, oh, that's pretty good. That's good. That one's pretty good. And then he would go, hey, is this a good idea for, is there something in this? You know, is this an idea for a cartoon? And we would do that for, we did it for long enough that eventually his radio brain kicked in, his background's in radio. And he was like, you know, this is actually make a pretty good podcast. And I said, I swore and I, it said, you know, every comedian has a friggin' podcast. Like, you, the world doesn't need another podcast. Um, but, yeah, we did one as, like, a proof of concept, and it went really well and kind of took off. He was right. He just, he's got good instincts on this stuff. And, uh, yeah, we, we did a bunch of episodes and then live podcasts. We got some um, celebrity guests, you know, like Ronnie Chang and Roy Wood Jr. from The Daily Show. We got... Uh, the great Bob Mankoff, who I hope will be one of your guests on this show at some point. Um, but, yeah, we, we got a lot of um, uh, really interesting feedback on it and we would involve the listeners and sort of get them to suggest cartoon ideas and see if we could punch them up and make them workable um, just, to, you know, just for fun. And the, the, the cartoon ideas that we came up with on the podcast ended up getting into the magazine and, in the New Yorker for the daily cartoons. Sometimes they showed up in Mad Magazine or the Weekly Humorist or, um, yeah, all over the place. So it was really fun kind of to basically you, just uh, open the door. to. Did you send them honorariums room. or? <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> I think that's crowdsourcing yeah. at its best. It's weird because we never ended up getting any of the uh, listener suggestions published at all and we really were kind of hoping that we could get one of them to work but we just never really mm. we just, I guess we never did enough work an object it, lesson for everyone don't try this at home <laughs> yes caption competition yeah so I have, I have a question when you when you switch between your comic strip hat and mm-hmm. your gag cartoon hat. Do you have, is it a, is it a difficult switch back and forth, especially when you have such a specific voice for ginger yeah. as opposed to, you know, a New Yorker gag cartoon that could be almost anything? Or yes, I mean the 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 old thing of just write for your audience is is that that is true. Um, so the newspaper audience for Ginger Meggs is 40 to 80 and uh, the gag cartoons in the New Yorker, uh, a totally different demographic. Um, it's uh, 80 to 100. Speaking. 80 to 100, I think, yeah. is the current one in the Upper West Side. But uh, it's one of those weird sort of things where you have to recalibrate. So I write in different rooms of the house and sometimes different places oh. in New York. So did John uh, Updike. separate it out. Oh, is that a John Updike thing? Yeah, he would go from room to room depending on what he was working on. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, there's definitely something in that because there's something in going to a place to do a thing because you recalibrate, you reset your brain when you go into the new space. So I write, this is going to sound very silly, but I write in the bath. Uh, I read that somewhere. I I heard that on Marty's. (laughs) That that was fascinating. Don't you get pruning? It was by accident. 
it, I have a little like a bath caddy thing and it has like almost like a drawing board thing. Like, and I don't bring a phone or a laptop <laughs> in there. It's just, it's just a right, like a yellow legal pad and, a, and you know, and, and I just sit in there and, and I close the curtain too, because it just creates this little cocoon of sort of closed off space and your brain just does something where it just goes, all right, you're in the ginger Megs universe now. So you just picture yourself in that wow. world and you write for that voice. And then when I'm doing gag cartoons, they, you know, they come to you, you know what it's like, is they come to you at all, all hours of the night and day and you've got to be ready to write them down and capture them when they pop up and when you're walking. Well, Bob, um, Bob writes on the roof. Totally Did you tell Jason <laughs> about your office? No, no, no. Is that what those scribbles on your ceiling are, Bob? No, actually I do work outside on the roof of my house. But, uh, but yeah. I actually learned a lot from you because you have a blog and you talk about this. And I'm sure a lot of people knew that you work in the bath, but you also share <laughs> these other tips, which I in turn have shared with my students. A really good, oh, cool. very constructive advice, which I, I, I followed some of it before, but some of it was new, mm-hmm. such as your to-do list. And that's a, it's a great tip that you can repeat right now in a, in a, in a moment because it's worth uh, repeating, definitely. And that is, you don't do everything by just a, a list, but you have a time. You schedule out everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't work from a to-do list. I used to do that for forever. I've been freelance for nearly 20 years-ish. And I basically used to just have this big, long list, ever-growing list of things to do. And it would be crippling because I didn't know what to start on. I didn't know when to do what. I didn't know what was going to take what amount of time. So I'd constantly be battling deadlines and figuring out, you know, how, what do I even do? It was, it was, it was like I said, it was crippling. Um, so I realized very quickly, if I had 365 comic strips to do per year, plus gag cartoons, Plus, at the time, I was doing editorial cartoons for the newspapers and uh, um, and commissions. I was like, well, I'm going to have to figure out how to fit this all in. And then I was doing stand-up at night, which yeah. is a nighttime sport. There's no stand-up during the day. Um, and it just sort of forces you to figure out, all right, what's the best way to do this and still build in gaps in your schedule to allow for dead time, for downtime. <laughs> um, so I block everything out in the calendar. I color code it. And uh, if you Google work from a calendar, not a to-do list, my article will probably come up where I actually show pictures of how it looks. Um, Because that's something that really helped me as a freelancer, especially when you're shifting gears from like, you know, if you're doing your most creative work in the morning, then assign a lot of that stuff for the first three hours of the day. Or if you know you're going to be doing emails and admin and invoicing and all that crap, you, you bundle that together at a certain time, but you copy and paste um, how long it took the previous time, and then you know exactly how long it's actually going to take. And that's a that's a that was a big revelation to me. It was actually not thinking, oh, that'll take thirty minutes, and then two hours later, you're like, crap, this invoicing's taking forever. So yeah, there's there's certain little tips that you learn as a freelancer when you have to be a self starter and you have you have projects that have deadlines and. No one else is writing you. There's no boss over your shoulder saying, "Hey, good work." What are those DPS reports? Uh, how far, so yeah, uh, Jason? Good. How far in advance do you work develop your the strip? Typically, I'm six weeks ahead with dailies and eight weeks with Sundays. Do you submit the 
I, I you're syndicated. So out of, is it still out of Kansas yeah. city? It is. Yeah. Yeah. Andrews McNeil syndication. They have a great editor that they gave me called Josh. Um, actually it's interesting. Uh, so, so Josh Perez is his name. Um, I never had an editor for the first, like, I want to say eight years doing the strip. So I was just uh-huh. flying blind. I didn't know how wow. it was being translated because it gets translated into Spanish and French and all sorts of stuff. And then I, and then finally I got some guidance and they've been awesome. Yeah. Uh, my, um, the team at Andrews and Mill have been fantastic. So I, I work ahead um on the strip they have to translate it and get it all laid out in all the newspapers so i think that's the closest you can fly to the sun is about i think it's about three weeks is the closest you can fly to the sun on that but i've, I've known of people to work up to like two weeks i think i think i heard patrick mcdonald one point say he was two weeks at and i'm like oh my god that's like running from a, an active volcano while it's <laughs> yeah that's like the, the train constantly... is catching up with you yeah, I couldn't do that. Yeah. I you, wish I had the, you know. Were you able to catch up a bit, though, during the pandemic? Because of the pandemic, you couldn't do as many stand-ups. Did it kind of give mm. you a breather a little bit? No. And I've spoken to other friends of mine who were creative, like working creative fields about this. Uh, I thought that the extra time that I had would yield extra productivity, but it didn't. I actually hit a slump. I had a real creative slump. And um, I was talking to an author friend of mine and she had to push back the release dates of her books because she was like, I just can't. I know I've got all this time and I'm sitting around at home and I've been working from home forever. But all of a sudden, for whatever reason, knowing that the quarantine is like imposed, all of a sudden my brain's doing something different to me and my creative slump has just consumed me and i had the same i really struggled wow maybe everyone gave themselves a uh subconscious timeout well (laughs) maybe well jason had a lot happen to him in the past year and i don't know if you want to get into this but what didn't happen to you well i didn't die that's for sure (laughs) but but your but your agent unfortunately passed away you had to deal with that yeah it's been an interesting and surreal um, year for everyone, but um, certainly not being able to, um, like, because, you know, we, we're in Manhattan. My wife and I were living in Alphabet City for the past seven years, and that is a neighbourhood that very, very rapidly declined and, and, and sort of regressed to its old 90s um, uh, era style of, of, of things. And... Um, we both caught the coronavirus uh, pretty early on in like March, April, and uh, not a lot was known about it back then. And we were kind of caught. Um, we, we, we thought we got out before things really picked up in New York. Um, and unfortunately, we caught it in St. Louis, <laughs> of all places, um, in an airport. So we, um, because that's the only place we were around people um, otherwise, we were completely isolated, and uh, we were in an empty Airbnb, and we both got it really bad. And uh, I, I didn't know what the onset of symptoms was because every time I googled it, it would be something different. So uh, I drew it. I just drew every day like what I was experiencing, and then I published it online so that you know anyone who got the 
virus could at least go, well, hey, maybe I'll, that'll be a thing. You know, maybe I should stock up on painkillers and toilet paper. Uh, but yeah, so it was, it was, that happened. And then my wife got it, obviously. And then we were stranded for, for a while, um, came back to New York eventually. And uh, yeah, we had friends who d- uh, died and uh, my agent was one of them. Uh, he was a really, we were close. He was a good uh, friend. He was a real, he was a rare agent because he was, he really, you know, some agents, I've got a lot of friends who are actors who are, and comedians who are just like my agents, a piece of crap, you know, and this guy was good. He was, he'd, you know, he'd show up on set and, you know, hang out with you in the green room and just check if everything was okay, if you had everything you needed, if you were happy with the way the production was going, he doubled my money on everything I booked, um, you know, he was a really good agent, and unfortunately, he caught uh, COVID nineteen and uh, was hospitalized, and it was a pretty protracted hospital um, battle. And um, yeah, he, he passed away in March, so that was tough. And yeah, you you know, my default when bad things happen is is to make jokes. That's what I've always done my whole life. Uh, but that one was really tough. I couldn't really. I couldn't really pull myself out of that one. Well, we our condolences. We really feel for you. It's terrible. And thanks. Yeah. I mean, let, me, let me ask you. Let's switch it to a, something happy that happened during the pandemic. You did have uh, mm-hmm. an interesting uh, run-in with a comedian in a club. Um, <laughs> would you mind sharing um, a, a highlight of the pandemic? What now? What specifically are you talking about there? You're being very, very well, well, around all these well, Mr. leading Mr. question. Yeah, Mr. Chris Rock uh, is someone you ran into one night. Oh, I thought it was Milton Berle. Ah, heck. <laughs> yeah, I think Henny Youngman was. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I obviously, like I said, I can't not do comedy or at the very least be part of it and watch it. And the best comedy club in the world is the Comedy Cellar. And before they were technically reopened to do shows in their basement or the Village Underground or the Fat Black, uh, Pussycat lounge around on Third Street. They were doing shows up in the Olive Tree Cafe, which no one knew. We were just showing up there. I would go there with a friend and have dinner and uh, like a, a drink and just sort of hang out and talk shop. And then, you know, uh, Liz, the manager, would come over and go, Hey, we're doing a show. Uh, it's kind of like a mic, you know, basically comedians performing for the other comedians at the, at the comics table at the other end of the room. But um, hey, if you guys want to stick around, you know. You're welcome to, sh- to stay. And there were like, there were four of us. And then halfway through, one guy came in, he like wandered in off McDougal Street, ordered some nachos. And so there's five of us sitting there watching comedian after comedian. And these are like the best comedians in the city. Like the comedy seller is as high uh, quality as you can get. And we're just watching and, and everyone's doing great. And then Daniel Simonson is a really funny um I think he's a Norwegian comedian. He was on there and then the waitress walked up and handed him a little slip of paper, uh, which is which is always uh, code in Comedy Cellar for, oh, someone big's dropping in, like Jerry's dropping in or, or Louie or someone. So um, sure enough, Daniel said, oh, all right, um, I'm going to bring on your next comedian. It's Chris Rock. And everyone kind of looked at each other like, wait, what? Where is he? And he was wearing this big puffy jacket with like clear rimmed like glasses, eyeglasses, big glasses. I didn't, honestly didn't recognize him. 
And he did like 25 minutes of brand new stuff, like right off his phone, just ideas that he'd been thinking about throughout the pandemic. And he's just like to watch someone like that just work stuff out. And he honestly, he just bombed for 20 minutes and then he just hit something in about minute 21 and it killed. It was amazing. He just found this nugget of gold. He was sifting through. He found this nugget of gold and then just started like Chris rocking it, you know, like he just, he just finds a premise and then just tears it to shreds. It's awesome. And I, I was gasping through it. I'd never laughed so hard. And it was just, and there were five of us. He was doing it for five of us and in a restaurant in McDougal street. And so I, you know, I looked at my friend, he's a comedian. I looked over and I was like, can you believe what is happening right now? This is just, <laughs> it's not like a drop-in at the cellar. You like drop-ins happen at the cellar all the time. Like, you know, comics, big celebrity comedians drop in every night, but Chris Rock doesn't show up upstairs at the restaurant to do an open mic for 20 minutes. That never happens. And yeah, it was surreal and awesome. And it just completely reignited my enthusiasm for getting back out there and writing new material, which I've since done. Thank God. That's great. Uh, Jason, how tempting is it for the other comedians to want to chime in and, and sort of workshop someone else's material or is that what was the what's the etiquette for that like what would be appropriate and not appropriate i i actually so unless you're a comic and they know you're a comic and they already kind of know you it's kind of weird to go up to another comic and go have got a tag for that bit it's okay but it's kind of strange so unless you're also passed at the same club like for instance if you're at the comedy cellar you're going to be hanging out at the table which is right in the corner near the bar the table's kind of got this mythic weird thing to it where you, to sit at that table, you have to have earned it. You know, it's a pretty big deal. And if you're a comic at that table and you have a tag or, or a different punchline or a different angle for a joke, you can pitch it to someone else at the table. But if some schlub walks up to the table and goes, hey guys, I love your show. Hey, you know, I got a good joke. for. I know you were talking about Denmark. Boy, I got a good joke for Denmark. You can't really... You're gonna go. Thank you, sir. I love I'm that glad guy. you like the show. That's right. You know, but that's so you can't hold up. You can't hold up a scorecard. You can't go like seven point five. <laughs> that, that, that's the guy that Michael gets his captions from. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> He's sick burn there, Michael. <laughs> that's that's all right. Um. So yeah, does the allure of stand up pull you away from other things? Because that seems to like really create a lot of energy you know, for you personally. Yeah. I don't know. It's a, like I said, it's a nighttime sport. There's no comedy during the day. It's, you know, you can write jokes and you can work on them and you can listen back to your set and revise things and punch up some bits, but. Okay. You have a really, yeah. So you forego sleep or, (laughs) I mean, (laughs) No, I sleep, you know, I sleep pretty well. I wow, I, like good. I said, my schedule is kind of all blocked out in the calendar and I'm, I'm, I'm pretty rigid about it these days. <laughs> I'm picturing you just collapsing at the end of the day, oh. just like, just out like a light. <laughs> I mean, we didn't really talk about the other things you do because, I mean, you go out for auditions. Yeah, well, that was part of Sandy, but my agent, uh, he would just send me out for stuff and... Some of it, I was like, I'm not getting this. This is ridiculous. And then I'd kind of go in and flub the audition and they're the ones I would book. Um, and then the ones I really wanted, you know, like the commercial for uh, like um, 
uh, progressive. <laughs> I was trying to be the oh, next. Oh man, you worked at Flow. I wish uh, uh, if I if I did that, I could buy this entire building. Um, but unfortunately, I was the the face of dandruff, salsa <laughs> blue, and um, you do have nice I, hair. Well, I got free shampoo for life. Um, and then what was uh, New Jersey Lottery was one I shot recently in in. Um, uh, in quarantine that was a complicated shoot with like little animated characters yeah um and i like voiceover work like i did tv in the in the pandemic as well i did a show on food network that you mentioned that was fun i just got to be me just hosting a show but um i kind of prefer voice work because it's the perfect crime because you get to do all the silly voices and you get to act kind of you know you get to perform but no one has to see your face uh, you can walk down the street and people don't go, hey, it's that dandruff guy. Um, and you also get to do comedy. And it pays well. Voice work pays pretty well. So that would, you know, booking something like that, like a voice on a cartoon animated series would be kind of cool because you get to do everything without having to be on set all the time and in front of a camera and have to, you know, do your hair. Maybe they can segue the, the, the Geico lizard to Australia from <laughs> <laughs> then you're sad. And just I did audition for that. Or you could be his, this Australian cousin. Go ahead and pitch that. That would be nice. It would be. It wouldn't be a gecko. It would be a uh, frill neck lizard. Frill neck. <laughs> Driving yeah. a Holden instead of an Austin. Jason, I like seeing Cer- your face. Certainly not a Subaru Outback. I'm sorry, Bob. What were you saying? I was saying I, I like seeing your face. I I see you. I'll always remember you as the demo guy. The guy who <laughs> comes into your bathroom and says no demo, and I, I, I crack up every time I see that commercial. I have it on, you know, I, I recorded it. And it's just That's rewind, funny. replay, rewind, replay. I just can't get enough. <laughs> Bob has deep infatuations. Yeah. So, Bob Fitter is the, uh, we had to do that. We had to shoot that commercial in French and English because they're a Canadian company. Oh my! And I am not good at French. <laughs> can you just, for my sake, can we hear a bit? No demo. <laughs> oh my God, you're a natural, man. You are. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. Thank you. I like to thank the Academy. Jesus, yes, thank you very much. Yes, you. Do you have to change your accent for all the different commercial work? Do you you find your? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do, but I'm terrible at it. I don't have a good generic accent. It's it slips all the time. I because um, I don't, I never really had a very strong Australian accent to begin with back home, and people here sometimes confuse it for British or South African or whatever. But um, yeah, I I have like the New Jersey um, what do you call it? The New Jersey Lottery commercial, the Sells Blue commercial, the Bathurst commercial. I'm technically doing an American accent, but if you listen to it, it's dreadful. You can tell it's not. You can tell I have an Australian accent. So that's not my strong suit. But I have to. Yeah, they say, hey, well, do it in American. And I'm like, all right. <laughs> that, that sounds very American. That was yeah, very American. You can, you, can, you can switch it on and off for... Uh, Just hold your yeah, nose when you talk. You'll be fine. Right. Sure. Hold your nose. There as soon go. as you start talking, you curl your R's. It's like yeah. no one knows Hugh Laurie is actually British. Unless Which is watched. weird to me because he's iconic. He's an iconic. Yes, unless British you watch uh, uh, Wooster and Jeeves. Fr- 
Oh, Fry and Laurie. Yeah, yeah. Or Fry uh, and Laurie. It, he's he's a he's a genius. I, I just worked with his ex um, uh, personal manager assistant person, and she said he was the greatest <laughs> person in the world to work with. He was the most multi talented. He's a musician, good singer. It's like uh, obviously okay, for house. I can't singing. remember his name. Uh, the Mentalist. Simon Baker is in Australia. Simon Patrick Jane, right? And then he would do the lead in for the, he goes. Hello, we'll be right back in a moment. And you knew it was kind of Jane talking, but I mean, uh, Baker, what's his first name? Simon. Simon Baker, yes. So, yeah, we're like, we're just, we're like the, the scrolls in the Marvel universe. We're all, we're all just sort of insidiously inserting ourselves into your world and don't know that we're Australian until we pop up on late night and, and you know, Stephen Colbert interviews us and we have an accent all of a sudden. It's a, uh, there's a, a, someone I know who's on a show called Succession, which I really like the show. I think it's a great show. Um, it's on HBO and her name's Sarah Snook and she plays Shiv. She plays the, the daughter in the show. And she is as Aussie as, as they come. She's like, hey, how are you going? And then you watch the show and she has the best American, like you can't even get a hint of Australian in it. It's perfect. She has a pitch perfect Australian accent, uh, American accent. And it's it's like her character and the whole thing is just she's unreal. And you would if you heard her speak, you would not believe it. Yeah, there's so many American which American accent are we talking about? Like generic suburban kind of someone from nowhere accent. Yeah, I, I call it generican. That's a term that Generican's I good. I like when, that. Well, it's because it's a mix. It's got a bit of Californian, a bit of Midwestern. It's got some East Coast. There's no Boston in there, even though I sort of, you know, don't uh, pronounce my R's. Um, and there's a touch of sort of a little bit of Kentucky or Missouri once in a while in there. So it's kind of this <laughs> mishmash that becomes this generic and um, almost, it's almost like, you know, how in the UK they have received pronunciation, which is everything you hear on the BBC every day. It's, they all sound exactly the same. If America had that, it would be the broadcast journalism school accent. Uh, and that kind of, did you, you went to, did you go to journalism school, Michael? Did, you said you yes, studied Yes, yes, I went to the University of Missouri, the J school. Right, in right, right, right. Did they teach that there? Did they teach what it No, I was, I was, I was a copywriter. I was aver- oh, okay. uh, majoring in advertising, but um, it was really funny because all these people would come from all over to be in the uh, J school for broadcast. And right, right. the woman who, one of the teachers, she was a professional uh, journalist, but she was from new Orleans and she had this um, really funky accent. Mm-hmm. And she goes, yeah. yesterday, wild horses got out. I go houses. No, <laughs> not houses, horses, horses. Yeah, that's what I said. Horses. <laughs> that's that's me every day just trying to order a bacon egg and cheese it's a nightmare you're doing fine you, you don't look so <laughs> you're doing okay yeah jason um you're also the president of the ncs national cartoon society yes. what news you have for us got anything you want to share what's going on and what's happening with the room yeah we're cha- so we're the past, I'm in my second term now because my first term was spent indoors 
Um, and we've been basically trying to adapt the NCS to the, to the industry, which is rapidly, rapidly changed. Um, I mean, it's always rapidly changing, but more so than ever recently. So we're rewriting the bylaws to sort of adapt to allow for um, cartoonists who make their living as cartoonists and haven't, you know, had a drop of ink on a, on a piece of newsprint. Um, and that uh, it's, it's, it's such an, the organization started in 1946. So the bylaws are very old and um, we're also doing a virtual, as we did last year, a virtual NCS Fest sort of Rubens um, weekend this year, because we polled all of the members and asked if we, if they would feel safe coming to an in-person Rubens and, and the resounding answer was no, which is totally understandable. I, I was. I never so, felt safe. Yeah. So I never felt safe going. I just. I mean, yeah. <laughs> That's just because no, of Sergio. He's, they he's need just, to. Uh, I think I redesigned the uh, Goldberg Award, the Rubin Award. It looks like mm -hmm. an unspeakable act of depravity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, two guys, one pen. Well, it's an interesting uh, design because we had to get a new mold made this year, and the mold maker was like, "What is it meant to look like?" And we're like, "You know what? I'm gonna have to go back." <laughs> into the archives because i don't know anymore <laughs> it's a weapon it looks like a weapon or something you would kill someone with in cluedo uh well jason who's the host this year i uh, that's a massive uh secret that's a big secret we're doing something very special this year um we're gonna we're, we're mixing it up we're, do, we're taking the opportunity of having kind of an off year, like a non-in-person year to do something a bit different. Um, and yeah, it's, it's pretty exciting actually. And you don't realize how, like I didn't, I certainly didn't realize how many people we have in the organization who are not um, just sort of quiet, introverted people. You know, you've been to a Rubens and there's, there's plenty of cartoonists as cartoonists often are, it's very quiet, keeps themselves very introverted. Um, but then there's cartoonists who just happen to have these ridiculous skills that you didn't know about. Yeah, try to try to get and and performance. Yes, try to get Mike Peters out of his shell. I mean, <laughs> oh my gosh! Oh, it's so good to see you, <laughs> Michael. Oh, that's so great. I'm still, I love him. He's one of my favorite people. I'm still decompressing from when I met him. We're uh, we're fellow St. <laughs> Louisians, so I, I'm sorry you caught yes. COVID there. Yeah, well, I actually love St. Louis. That's why I was there. I love St. Louis. Uh, but um, yeah, it's uh, I'll, I'll go back. We, we're going back actually in June uh, for a little summer, for a week in summer. So that'll be nice. Um, Mike Peters is another example of someone who um, I just until you you see their cartoon, you see Mother Goose and Grimm, and you see you know the work, but then you meet the person, and you're like, holy moly! What, this is amazing. Like it's, it's, there's so many cartoonists who are very quiet, like Jack Davis, you know, the polite, Oh, howdy, how are you? Oh, God bless you. Yeah. Good to see you. <laughs> and then you, their work is this amazing explosion of energy and color and, 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 and line and, and just motion. And, and you meet the person and they're so quiet and there's a, more Drucker, you know, all those guys were just so nice. And, and then, uh, and then you see their work and you're like, oh, my God, look at this. It's crazy. You'd think they were doing it on a trampoline. Got so much energy. <laughs> That's good. Um, <laughs> so uh, when is the Rubens? 
We're looking at October 15th, the weekend of the of October 15th. Okay. It's the weekend after New York Comic Con, which, fingers crossed, still happens at the Javits. Um, there is a, uh, a crossover this year that we're doing, um, which I can't say too much about just yet, but we're getting a lot more international talent involved and spreading it across uh, three days instead of just doing eight hours like we did last year. We're going to really, so that because some people couldn't attend last year because they were like, well, I'm not around that day, so I'm not going to be able to see it. I'll have to watch the replay. But now if we spread it, we're spreading it across a few days so that we can sort of, um, more people can avail themselves of the of the show and of the uh, the conference sessions. And we're making it a bit more interactive so it's not all pre-recorded. Um, yeah, we're chatting about um, a lot of different topics and a lot of different skill sets. And um, it's, yeah, it's going to be like nothing we've ever done before. And that sounds like a sales pitch. It's just, that's exactly what it is. It's like nothing we've ever tried before. So fingers crossed everything works. <laughs> yeah, don't out. go golden globed. Oh God. Why would, why would we? <laughs> so where's the big witch? So we're, we're doing it virtually, but we are oh, going to do virtual. a concurrent, uh, well, like a, like a simul, simultaneous, uh, again, hopefully if there's no relapse of, of cases and things like that, uh, uh, at the Society of Illustrators in New York. Um, but we're, we're going to sort of, like I say, I'm being so, I'm so trepidatious about saying anything because uh, every time I say something, another disaster happens and we have to replan things. So. Um, you, you mentioned um, the Golden Globes. I think the last good Golden Globes was, I mean, the last memorable one, I guess, was when Ricky Gervais was hosting and he just slammed everyone, which was yeah. great. He had one of the best monologues he's ever had. So that's, I mean, if you say going the way of the Golden Globes, yeah, sure, that'd be nice going Go that, that way, yes. but not the yeah. way they've gone now. That's a bit. Yeah, I think they ended on a high. So, um, you don't have, I, I don't know. I, it's humor is such, uh, there's a lot of trepidation now in humor. So, uh, it's almost like we need a reset, I think. <laughs> I wanted to ask you guys about this because, and is Marty allowed to chime in? It's Marty. Hi, Marty. No. Marty's here. The answer's he's no. not allowed. I'm here. Yes, of no, course, he's, he's waving. No, he's he's because I've I, across comedy and my comic strip and gag cartoons and editorials, I am definitely finding that um, the audiences are laughing at different things, maybe, uh, or people are less inclined to let themselves laugh. And one of the things I noticed in uh, quarantine was that um, people really wanted to laugh; they just wanted some catharsis, right? But when you do Zoom comedy, everyone's camera is on, which is like putting a spotlight on the audience. And their, their microphone is on, which is like giving everyone in the audience a microphone. And then the comedian's trying to do their act. And meanwhile, everyone else has a spotlight and a microphone and it just doesn't work. But the reason comedy works the way it does in a club is that the audience is in the dark and you can't see them and they can't see each other. They're more likely to laugh because they don't feel guilty for being looked at for laughing at certain things. Now it seems like everyone has their own personal brand, particularly on social media, and to be seen to be retweeting something or laughing at something or even finding something interesting just by association, you're 
if, if it's the wrong thing, if it's deemed the wrong thing, even retroactively, all of a sudden, you're in serious trouble. You can get your, your whole career can be erased overnight. Are you finding this stuff? Yes, it's funny because Bob was mentioning the uh, resurrection of the rejection collection, which yes. uh, I had some cartoons on and he was telling me this one is going to be reprinted. And I go like, okay, <laughs> can I have my name taken off of it, please? <laughs> but, you know, it'll either... I mean, stuff, and this is like 2004. So yeah, if it's like, yeah. you know, I don't know. It's like, it's, it is a different time. Which cartoon but, show? Yeah. Was it the, was it the uh, cartoon that, that, that that's I just the one saw? I sh- yeah. That was such, that was a great cartoon. You should be so proud what of that What was the cartoon, cartoon buddy? What was it the, was, it was so ahead of its time. Um, you just, I mean, it, well, it was, it was it, was it stop and I'll shoot? Yeah, it was, a. it was this black guy running away from, uh, an officer of some sort and the officer saying stop and I'll shoot. It was stop. That's and a great I'll joke. Shoot. And I saw that's it a solid joke. recently. I saw it like in the past week and I was like, wow, that's great. Thinking it was now. Yeah. And he was like, this is from 2004. And I was like, what? Yeah. This is like, Wiley so- Miller did that this week as well. He did a, He posted a cartoon strip from 20 years ago, which was about the same thing. And it was the fact that nothing has changed. You know? It really so, hasn't. I mean, it's, it's, it's just it's, gotten worse. It's gotten worse. Yeah. It was I don't know amazing. if it's gotten worse or it's just everything is now looked at and mm-hmm. kind of put under, like you said, it's put under the Zoom microscope. Yeah. <laughs> so you have no room for error. Oh my God. Jason, Jason, how do you think the comedy landscape has changed? I mean, I have my own theories of where this began, where uh, you do. I'll just I'll just quickly say this confessional style where it's expected that as a stand-up or a cartoonist, you open up. And maybe that's even a priority mm-hmm. over being funny, is that you are expected to share a part of you that's private. And it, there's a contradiction there too, because at the same time, people are not supposed to be sharing everything online that's considered um, in bad form mm. as well. But I, I feel like that's the place of comedy now is where everyone is, it's more important to be confessional. And um, as someone who's playing both sides of the coin, what do you think? <laughs> it's an interesting thing because I'm, I'm constantly aware of anything that I put out being, you know, digital permanence, like, oh, what if I change my mind on something? Or what if some new information comes to light and something I thought or made a joke about five minutes ago, you know, all of a sudden it's, it's deemed as, as, as inappropriate or something, um, which is why I think it's, it's amazing that people are living their lives like an open wound many of the time, like much of the time with, with comedy, and with with autobiographical fiction and, and cartooning, I love honestly. I love um, a lot of the um, like uh, autobiographical cartoons who really um, like show their innermost thoughts and feelings and ideas and stuff. Um, because the inner workings of a cartoonist's brain is kind of strange, and then getting a slice of what their day is is kind of fun. I always like watching Emily Flake kind of draw what happens at her place. That's always great. Um, but then there are those who you're like, ah, I didn't need to know that. <laughs> <You're> <laughs> like, that one was a lot. Uh, but, but I think it's personal taste. I think some people really enjoy that stuff. And I think um, other people just don't. And as far as comedy goes, 
I think you're right that some people think by having watched a certain, um, like whatever school of comedy they came up in, that confessional style of comedy where it's like your life on a plate, um, sometimes that can be hilariously funny. Some of the funniest comedians I've ever seen in my life, the Richie Pryors of the world, did that. They they were the, like Richie Pryor was probably the first to really open up and just no holds barred, just give you everything from his life. Just completely honest, you know, <laughs> he set himself on fire, you know. Um, <laughs> it, 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 there's that. And then there's the other side where you realize, oh, Richie also wrote jokes in there. He also really, he, he worked on that. I, on that thing he wasn't just coming up with it off the top of his head even though it looks like it that's half the job with comedy is to make it look like you're just coming up with it he worked so hard um on those jokes in the same way that jerry or anyone does you know with with the word economy and with when to put the certain operative word and all those bits of business in, in comedy writing and i was hosting open mics in new york for years uh probably years too long uh because i just saw comic after comic after comic think that you just got up and started saying things that happened to you or just make things dirty and then immediately think oh why aren't they laughing like this is just i'm just telling you uh, you know i'm living like an open wound here i was like yeah you gotta write jokes though i'm so i'm (laughs) i'm sort of deemed as a bit of a grumpy old man um in 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 um not in comedy circles but in the in the uh sense of like I came up writing joke. I'm a big joke guy. Like I love the mechanics of a joke. I like the word economy. I like the way it sounds, the rhythm. I, I like a lot of jokes per minute, a lot of laughs per minute. Uh, my set is, yes, it's about me. And there's things about me that I share that are jokes, but are also kind of funny. Marty, you've heard more than a few of them. <laughs> uh, the eggs joke comes to mind, but I, I also make sure that it's not just a dear diary entry and that it's, Hey, here's, here's a funny thing that happened today. Or here's me breaking down in front of you uh, for your pleasure. Like there is definitely something to so, someone getting on stage. Yeah, does it take you like in front of you? five years to get to your tight 20? I, I think longer than five, I think seven, at least to get 20, seven, like a tight yeah, to, to get good at it. You can you can develop you can develop 20 in a year from beginning, like to from the start. And that'll get you, you know, maybe some hosting gigs or I see now, yeah, Malcolm Gladwell's stand up is not great. <laughs> and he's worked on he's it for like ten thousand. Yeah, he's done about 10, seven more hours from He's done about yeah. seven thousand hours, and you can tell. <laughs> the, the, every the 10, time hours roll. What were you saying, Mark? Every time I think, every time I think I'm getting ill from having eggs, I think of you personally. <laughs> now we have to hear that. That's joke. all I want. Like every time I'm, well, like, I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, maybe it was the eggs. You know, it was. It might be the eggs. You know, when Jason, when Jason has eggs, makes him sick. Mm-hmm. Maybe this is what Jason had. Yeah. Like I literally, the- you, you pop into my head. <laughs> In a terrible time when I'm like, oh, Jason Sheffield, I should have listened. The, I should have listened to Jason. When, when there's grumbling in your tummy, that's when you think of me. It's, I mean, it's the Dwayne the Rock Johnson of foods. It's in everything. You remember this. And and anyone who orders couscous now or sees couscous on a menu, 
They also, I get texts going, at like even just people snapping menus and going, look at the couscous. That's all very strange having not heard the set. But um, I, I, was, um, I was a big Mad Magazine fan growing up. So my humor was kind of sick to begin with. So when I started doing stand up, and my immediate uh, um, uh, sort of reflexive thing to make something funny was to kind of go a little bit, you know, rim, dirty, silly. <laughs> and boy, what a void at um, Mad Left. It's amazing. I, I mean, mm. everything has changed so much in the last four years in the magazine, yeah. you know, for, for gag cartooning. Um, and you were talking about not always having to be funny in the rooms. I mean, there are rooms, especially now for comedy, that are not really, there, there's certain rooms that are, that are notorious for being sort of heavy handed and highbrow. Mm-hmm. And do you play those rooms at all or? They, I don't think they'll have me. Um, <laughs> I don't, that, you're, you're quite right. Comedy used to be this, particularly in New York, if you had a good act and you had some decent credits and you had a, some runs on the board and you could make your crowd laugh, you could pretty much play any club in the city. You could run from club to club on any given night, but there's definitely been a fracturing of the tone and style of comedy within the scene. So, and I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I, I, I was lamenting it when it started to happen, but I actually can see the, the good in it now is that not everyone wants to see the same kind of stuff and comedy is subjective Um it, you know, there's certain elemental things that are always funny. But if you go to a club and you know that you're going to hear the kind of comedy that you like, you're more likely to go back to that club and invite your friends. Whereas if you show up at a club and you hear a lot of stuff that eh, you don't really connect with, it's it's sort of like you're going to conflate every comedy club with that experience. So sometimes it's better if some clubs have a certain bent and, the, and then others, a lot of Brooklyn rooms and a lot of um, rooms around the place kind of have, as you say, you know, some more, um, I guess, a different tone. And then, you know, other clubs, are, you know, a, a different tone again. You know, the, it's, it's as different as Mad was from The New Yorker. The, it's just like being published in a different magazine these days. Different clubs want different kinds of acts. Yeah, I, I remember Nick Meglin uh, years ago, the late Nick Meglin, talking about uh, uh, jokes and it stuck with me. This is back in, I think, maybe Boston or uh, this is at a Rubens. Uh, it was maybe in L.A. or Boston or something. And it, and it stuck with me where he said, you know, sometimes um, – because he was a volume guy, right? So he would just pitch joke after joke after joke, volume, 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 volume until something hit. And he said, um, you know, people have different sensibilities with comedy, but the most honest thing you can do is just try and make yourself laugh. And I think that was really good advice because I it changed the way I, I wrote. I, I stopped trying to make things like write jokes that, people would hear and then go, oh, he's clever, you know, like stop trying to write jokes for the audience and try and be cloying and try and, you know, cater to them. Instead, I'd be like, well, what do I think is funny? What do I crack up laughing at? And then, you know, write jokes about that stuff. And if you write for yourself, you'll find a critical mass of people who end up laughing at the same stuff. And, uh, yeah, that always stuck with me. He was, he was always good like that. He always had little nuggets of yeah. genius Nick Megalin. 
And that's what everyone always says too. You hear this a lot from the old time cartoonist, a Sam Gross always says, just try to make yourself laugh. But Jason, who makes you laugh? Well, name maybe a cartoonist. Who's your favorite cartoonist? You have to name someone who's living because we don't want to pick favorites, sure. but maybe someone who's um, in the old days. And Come and on, Bob. You call this living? <laughs> yeah, who's, your favorite dead car- who's your favorite dead cartoonist? Yeah, that's what we're getting at. We're trying to say it nicely. Favorite dead cartoonist? Yes. Wow. Uh, or they could be sick. So we're not doing uh, well. It depends. Like, I think... Um, See, different disciplines, again. Um, I think Richard Thompson is my favorite. Um, oh, sure. A, a dead cartoonist. I think he was a, a genius. Um, I think Ronald Searle as well, I think was probably one of the great, great, wow. incredible He's like a cartoonist. These are illustrators. Yeah, these are illustrators. I mean, these are great craftsmen. Yeah, but they're cartoonists. I mean, there's a difference between an illustrator and a cartoonist in that they wrote their own stuff and they had a voice. Right. And they had a real view, like a lens on the world that was just sure. so unique to them. Like you couldn't give them a brief and go, hey, draw this like this. You know, Richard Thompson's Richard Thompson's gonna draw Beethoven like Richard Thompson draws Beethoven. You know what I mean? Like it's gonna be, you're gonna give it to them and you're gonna get back what they see. Um, same as Searle. I, I like Stedman, he's alive. Um, I That's, think um, we'll give you a live one. <laughs> yeah well honestly at least he's like, old actually makes me properly laugh out loud funny i i laugh all the time at ed steed i think ed steed's hilarious um i you know he's just an absurd just crazy his stuff is ridiculous um uh obviously like his like high up who makes me laugh as far as like cartoon cartooniness is Sergio, Sergio Aragonés has to be yes. my favorite living cartoonist. He he is he can do more in le- in the least amount of space that I've ever mm-hmm. seen. It's pretty amazing. Did what and what comic strips? Anyone, yeah. What comic strips did you look at growing up? I was a big Calvin and Hobbes fan. I was always a big uh, reader of Calvin and Hobbes, and uh, in my local paper, I only had Ginger Meggs, Calvin and Hobbes, and Garfield, so I didn't have much of a, <laughs> much of a selection. <laughs> Uh, but I used to buy collections of the books uh, and of the comic strips. So I was a big, big um, Watterson fan. Yeah. I, see, I actually I used... have, a, I have a, a Watterson on the wall over here. Uh-oh. Is it signed? It is. Uh-oh. Hold on to it. Don't give anyone your address. <laughs> the, the, the syndicate uh, syndicate gave it to me as a gift. Because <laughs> he's also with, uh, with Andrews McNeil. He's a bit reclusive, I understand. The most reclusive, indeed. Uh, I know. I actually met him at Ohio State University when I was at university, mm. and he gave a large <laughs> lecture on how the comic industry sucked and was going to get worse. And he was right. He was. I read that lecture. I re- Sorry, go on. I was going to say he's. To- he was tonight's guest until he backed down. We got you. <laughs> <laughs> you wish. I thought you could. Yeah, the, where's, what a where's, get where's, you would be. <laughs> Well, now Gary Larson is re has he re uh, resuscitated his career? Is he back? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's back. He's doing yeah, he's doing far side. He's working digitally now, which he didn't realize how far the digital technology had come since he started trying to work digitally back in the you know early two thousands, late nineties. And uh, he's he's back. Uh, yeah, it's like he he he's climbed out of the dryer and he's ready to go again. <laughs> yeah he was always one of those ones that those elusive and talk about reclusive 
um, yeah, one of those sort of elusive cartoonists that I was like, well, this guy, very often Scott and I will, at least once per episode, will come up with an idea and look at each other and go, I think Gary Larson did that one. <laughs> Usually a talking animal. But. Well, it's like Larson and Water, uh, Waterson, Waterson, yeah. Uh, they yeah. sort of defined comic strips for about 20 years. Him and yeah. Berkeley Brethren and few other mm-hmm. people what about Pierce? yeah opus <laughs> yeah Schultz. i mean uh it, well, it's, as, it's... as uh as mort walker used to say like ec is it ec cigar the inventor of uh the creator LZ, of popeye yeah yeah mm-hmm. was yeah. king's features favorite artist cartoonist mainly because he was dead <laughs> and they could do whatever they wanted you know that's funny yeah and they're still doing it today they're still doing it today <laughs> charles Schultz, he's He's still out there somewhere producing these. Jeannie Schultz, honestly, Jeannie is one of the best. Um, uh, speaking of people like, and I say this doing a legacy strip, uh, Jeannie Schultz is probably one of the best um, uh, caretakers of a legacy that I've ever seen, especially in comic strips. She, she is awesome. I really like Jeannie. Wow. All right. Good show. Yeah, she does a lot of work. She does a lot of work that nobody sees. Yeah, it's amazing just to keep a comic strip going and not kind of go in weird directions, even if it's just being reprinted, mm-hmm. is probably yeah. a pretty full-time yeah. occupation. Yeah, I mean, we, it's funny because it, just recently Tarzan finished up and that was in reruns for a long time, but it just really didn't uh, <laughs> mesh with the times anymore. And, uh, I really enjoy a good, <laughs> uh, good phantom. Yeah, I like Phantom. I always like Lee Falcon. He's always it was got one of those pist- interesting. He's always got that pistol. Two, yeah, the two pistols and his and his stripy underwear. I don't know why it was striped. Um, <laughs> his dog devil. I used to, yeah, I used to, I used to read um, Kit Walker and his and his yeah and his cave, his skull cave. I used to read those comics when I was uh, when I was a kid because I remember being in hospital. I had my appendix out and my dad just brought me this giant stack of phantom comics and i just devoured <laughs> them like nothing else tv there was no tv in the hotel room <laughs> in the hospital room um uh, bob you mentioned just before um how much the magazine industry's changed you were working for mad for the new mad but you had done stuff for the old mad right correct yeah, so you would you were a New York Mad contributor and an LA Mad contributor, right? And they are different yeah. beasts. Yeah, yeah, and um, you know what? The LA group did their best, but the circumstances were right. so you know extreme and stuff. I mean, and you just can't expect to change everyone on a masthead and be able to produce mm-hmm. the same thing. So yeah, no, I mean everything. Right. Everything about the business is just so different. It's just amazing how we've seen everything change. But and then you look at it this way. I mean, for most of civilization, man did not have written printed word. I mean, so, we discovered how to make the printing press in like what the 15th century, and here mm-hmm. we are. We're seeing it sort of slowly disappear, and that's actually happening pretty quickly. You know, it's been like a, a, a blip in a yeah. blip in history that we're losing the printed manner. Yeah, now, it's now weird. I'm all you look sad, at, uh, Bob. 
God. I was looking at, um, they had like Da Vinci's journals that he used to keep and they posted them online recently. Um, usually you used to have to go to the British Museum to see them or the Louvre yeah. or you know, wherever they were kept, met, or there were bits and pieces everywhere. But um, I remember just reading them and going, well, these survive, they, these will transcend the printing press, the internet, all these things, just handwritten stuff. Like it's not, it's not, um, it's not printed on newsprint that will, you know, it's not gossamer. It's, it's, it's a real thing yeah. that will transcend generations. But um, the, yeah, the notion of like um, the printing press just being a blip in our civilization in the, in the grand scheme of things. I was watching it's a, a 2009 film called state of play with Russell Crowe, another Australian. Um, and he <laughs> was a journalist like one of these real hack journalists, you know, one of these real like gritty, like, yeah, I live on whiskey and newsprint. <laughs> and um, I was watching it and, and the whole, the, the at the very end of the film, the credits roll over a sequence of a newspaper being printed from the, the bromides through to the plates, through to the, the actual um, the press itself. And then the, the, the pre-press stuff, as well as the, the stitch and the fold and all that stuff. And I remember watching it because I used to work in newspapers. That was my first job as a teenager was working in newspapers. And I remember the smell of it. Like I was yes. watching the screen and I could smell the, 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 the ink and I could smell the paper. And it was this weird, so, what is it, somnosomatic memory. I could just smell a thing that I could see. And I remember thinking, oh, there's, there's a generation of cartoonists now and illustrators and artists who will just never get to know that feeling of drawing a cartoon like a minute before a deadline, turning it in and then it going to press and then feeling the building wobble, like as the presses would sort of wind up in the basement and, and then see like um, seeing the paper, the first papers come in at like four in the morning and, and flipping through and just like, and seeing, Oh great. That's the thing. I just, I just submitted and now it's in print in my hands. That's such a, it's a, an indelible memory I have from my first published like editorial cartoon in like 2003, I think. And um, yeah, it's just that there's an entire generation will never have that. It's funny. Yeah. I, I really don't enjoy looking at too many comic strips at one time. Cause you uh-huh. used to look at one a day. Yeah. Cause you got the paper. That's on purpose. And then you'd open it up. And it's like a baseball player. If they're hitting one out of three, <laughs> you're hitting 300. You're like, eh, okay, handicap, okay, fall, fell in the canal, okay, Dagwood's making a sandwich, uh, you know. Yeah. So they they weren't really really funny, but they were very consistent and mm-hmm. and mildly amusing because you know Dagwood was going to go take a nap and Andy was going to like you know bop flow one so right but it would reset like there were no there was yes. no canon where it was like oh every we have to carry this on for years afterwards like it was it was meant to be escapism from the horrendousness of the newspaper like you know there's, there's another bombing in gaza and then you flip to the comics page and some people just start with the comics page or the uh, or the obits you know <laughs> because it's it's such a it's an escape from the misery of of the rest of the you know editorial sections, and it didn't have to be hilarious. It could just be respite. No, no, and you didn't, you know, you didn't expect hilarity. Yeah, sometimes it would be funny, really funny. 
Once no, in like, a while, though. No, no, like BC was very consistent in being quirky, funny in a way that mm-hmm. I I found unusual for comic strips. This is Jason. Oh, Michael, what are your favorites? Jason, this is uh, Michael's way of saying you're doing the Lord's work. You are doing the Lord's <laughs> work. No, I. It's funny because I tried to get syndicated, and I like. Good Lord. It is like the hardest thing on earth. It's, it's, it's tough. Yeah, it is tough. And it's funny. I, like at one time peanuts was syndicated to 2000 newspapers. And wow. I don't even think there's 2000 newspapers left on earth now. I mean, I remember Jim Borgman saying at one point when he and Jerry Scott were doing zits, they still are, but um, this was when Borgman was at the Cincy Inquirer back. Right. Maybe when you were there. Um, and I remember him saying something about, oh, we just hit 2,000 papers or something. This is a while back. It was like a long time ago. And I remember thinking, I can't even picture 2,000 different newspapers in my head. I was from Australia. We have like five newspapers and they're all owned by Rupert Murdoch. Um, so right. it's like a weird concept for something to be syndicated that widely uh, to me. So when he was saying that, I just couldn't fathom the scale of it. And now we're back to, you know, it being pretty amazing if you're in a 100 or 200, you know, if like, you know, if, you, if you're starting out, that's pretty good numbers. <laughs> yeah, Jason, how much longer do you think you're going to be doing Ginger? Another 100 years or? Yeah, I think I'll try it for another 100 and see how we end up. <laughs> it's, it's, it's funny because we have readers who read him online now because he's on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook automatically. They, they post every day. And people just think it's a. There's people who think it's a web comic. They don't know it's a hundred year old newspaper comic strip. That's true. So, don't you have like a eighty year old avid follower? Who... <laughs> oh yeah, we've got quite a few of those. We the comment section's always very lively. I remember <laughs> in my day, we never used to play cricket like that. It was an. It was a weird thing when I took it over to get feedback because you used to have to get letters from the newspaper sent over to. Like if they sent a letter to the paper, you'd, you'd ha- the paper would have to share it with you for you to get feedback from the reader. And often they couldn't be bothered. They're like, ah, screw it, just throw that one out. <laughs> but now you get it immediately. You get comments right. on every single one and everyone has their say on the comic of the day. And, the, and certain readers like know each other and they sort of have their own little in-jokes. And then there's other people who are like complain about the same thing. Every there was time. another thing that uh, editors really did not like animal cartoon strips because when they canceled them, they had a very high squeal factor in that they, they would have very small but avid followers who would be just mortally wounded if their mm-hmm. comic strip was dropped. I mean, there you yeah, go. I mean, uh, uh, Peanuts, Pills Before Swine, Garfield. I think it was uh, Schultz who told Jim Davis, here's some comic trivia that probably everyone knows. It was, it was Schultz who told Jim Davis to uh, make Garfield uh, walk on two feet instead of four. Oh, really? And that was a pretty big, pretty big jump. And uh, and Garfield is the most syndicated strip in the world now. And, and I'm not saying Cat- it's because of that one thing, but it certainly helped. <laughs> no, and feature cat lasagna. Oh yeah, yeah, the lasagna thing. Lovely. <laughs> I'm so full. <sighs> Okay. Yeah, you can see actually if you go to ncsfest.com, Jim actually gave a nice talk about humor and jokes and writing Garfield and why he does what he does and how he does it. Um, it's about I want to say it's like 40 minutes long, but yeah, if you go to ncsfest.com, we 
I, I got to interview him. I say interview him. I teed him up for a talk last year and, and just basically hit record. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was, it was interesting to see his, uh, he went to college with David Letterman. He was at Ball State. And uh, one of them ended up, they both wanted to be stand-up comedians and only one of them <laughs> ended up making a career. Of it. And I'm thinking uh, he might be wealthier than Letterman <laughs> at this point. Who knows? Yes. Did you see, I, I heard he sold Paws Inc. or something. He sold Garfield recently. I don't oh, know I what the number was, but it's got to be stratospheric. Huh. Yeah. Jason, I'm, <laughs> I'm concerned about your time. You, you, we did go over sure. the 40 minute limit. We were just blocked out. Wait, we, we went from orange to purple. It's time to go. Yeah. And uh, I know with your schedule, I mean, what are you doing later? Are you writing a screenplay or doing a musical? What, what, you're, you're Both, on the at the same time, <laughs> I'm actually, I think I mentioned earlier that right after this, Scott and I are getting together for the first time in a long time to discuss getting the band back together. We're actually going to a comedy show tonight, but okay. at the same time, we are um, uh, working on bringing Is There Something in This back to the podcast world. So it's it podcast. IT, Let's it's hope IT there podcast. was something in this to bring back to our podcast world too. this is fun i could talk with you guys all day this has been this has been really fun no thank you it's been great to have you you you're like the da vinci you are da vinci of these modern times doing everything i actually did a piece for smithsonian (laughs) institute uh da vinci wedding planner because he once was also a wedding planner and and i'm thinking you are you are da vinci with all the different uh, hats you wear it's pretty amazing have you planned any weddings? <laughs> I planned my own. In yeah. fact, that's a lie. I didn't. My wife planned ours in her lunch break one time. We didn't really have a wedding. We so much as just a big party at a cigar bar. We, she walked in her lunch break to a cigar lounge, said, hey, uh, we're going to have a small wedding with just some friends and family. What's your menu like? And are you available on this date? Wow. They went, yes. She said, here's the deposit. Wedding planned. She did it in under 20 minutes. Luckily, she smoked cigars. Yeah, we, we used to smoke cigars back then. We don't really do that anymore. <laughs> well, that's wonderful, though. That's, that's the way to do it. Yeah, we didn't have any cake. Come on, draw comics or smoke cigars. That's very, that's classic old school. <laughs> that's very Mel Lazarus of me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jason, where can we see your work? Where can we uh, get the book? Give us a little bit of info. The, Sure. Well, uh, you can see my work uh, just jasonchatfield.com is probably the best place to go because everything's there. Um, the book is at gingermegs.com um, and there's an international order link there now. Um, and uh, yeah, you mentioned earlier that I sort of post things about, like I'm a big process junkie. Like I like, I'm interested in how artists work and, and the process behind you know, creating stuff. So I always post on my blog about, you know, little tips and stuff that I learn and try and share it if, if it helps other cartoonists. So that's just jasonchatfield.com slash blog. Great. You made Bob Great. stop asking where your ideas come from. So <laughs> that's the question. The question that is never asked. It's just implied. The bath is the answer. The, the bath. bath. That's good. Doesn't, doesn't the water get cool? I would kind of like... Ugh. 
Well, keep topping it up. You gotta keep topping it up. You just pull the plug and keep topping it up with water. And you don't get too pruney. Well, no, you gotta keep drinking water. And also, once in a while, have a little glass of scotch. But yeah, it's good. Is there any chance I could be invited? (laughs) It's a one man show. That's what got you in trouble. Even my wife isn't invited. (laughs) Well, it's been great having you here. You look great. Look forward to seeing you on. I got you. Uh, thank you. You guys are amazing. I'm enjoying the show, by the way. For what it's worth, I listen to the show and I enjoy it very much. You're a good gang and you, you, uh, your guests are incredible. We want so, you to yeah. listen to it in the bath. <laughs> oh, in the bath. <laughs> Watching Not you a play and up. Yeah, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Troll All right. right. Hope to see you soon in person. You take care of yourself. Yeah. You too. Cheers, Bob. Cheers, Michael. Cheers. Thanks, buddy. Okay. And Michael, what did you think of Jason? Wasn't that fun? Uh, the guy is a Renaissance fellow. I don't know how he finds the hours in the day. Uh, he must have a day extender <laughs> or, or, or some sort of device. Or there's more than one of them. Yeah, I would have wanted to hear more about his upbringing in Australia because I always hear these tall tales of like how rugged it is and how extreme everything is in the outback. I think he's actually from St. Louis, and that's all made up. That's that's my theory. That's why. Yeah, that's why we yes. didn't divulge more. But yes. we'll bring him back next time. We'll, we'll dig deeper. Let's get to the bottom of this. Exactly. Uh, well, Michael, it's good to see you. Um, good to hear you. So uh, thanks, everyone. Uh, to all the cartoon uh, lovers, cartoonists, stay well, stay funny, stay six feet back. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.